Okay. Um, this is the point in our gathering where the kids are going to leave us. So parents, if you want to just escort your young ones to the doors, the, um, the Crossroads kids volunteers are there to welcome them. Hey, thanks so much for being with us, kids. <clears throat> it's such a pleasure for me personally just to see Jeff and Heather up there. I've had the privilege of walking with Jeff for the last couple of years. I can honestly say um, I really, really want to see them in that slot and what a gift it would be to give to that campus to have a couple like that who have just been really transformed uh, by Jesus then passing on uh, the knowledge of that transformation and the experience of that transformation to those students. What a gift that we could give to shoot them out like that. So let's just get around them in prayer and in support. Um, it's just a privilege to um, see them reach this spot. Well done, you two. All right. So um, we are in Ephesians here this morning. Um, I want you to get your Bibles open. If you don't have one, just raise a hand and someone will bring a Bible to you from the table at the back. But if you turn to Ephesians 5, that's where we're going to be at work this morning. Okay. Uh, as we begin, I, I want to have us just zoom in on a single verse in our text. Um, in a minute, we're going to stand and read as we normally do. But just for now, I want you just to have your Bibles open where you sit. And look with me at Ephesians 5, verse 18. And I wonder, um, someone with a loud voice, uh, would you read that for us? Someone, one of the guys with a nice meaty voice. Ephesians 5, 18. Okay, Rick. Perfect, thank you. Okay. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now, this might sound a little bit odd, uh, but I think that's the theme verse for this section of Ephesians. And as we go through this message, I'm hoping to be able to show you why. Paul wants to talk to us about being filled with the Spirit. But it's interesting how he does it, isn't it? Uh, that he compares being filled with the Spirit to being drunk. Now, uh, that's not the first time that we've seen that idea in our Bibles. Uh, you might remember in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Spirit for the first time, they started declaring the wonders of God to all the people in the city in their own languages, and uh, the people there accused them of being intoxicated, didn't they? So I guess there is maybe some kind of superficial similarity between uh, getting drunk and being filled with the Spirit, maybe in the kind of the energy and the freedom of it. But Paul is looking below the surface here in Ephesians, and he sees something very different in these two things. Paul is thinking about what motivates people to get drunk. And I guess that hasn't changed all that much from his time 2,000 years ago till now. Um, so what is it? What is it that makes us do that? What is it that motivates people to get drunk? The desire to fit in? The desire to forget yourself? The desire to be freed from your inhibitions. It's all about escaping, isn't it? Fleeing from the limitations of normal life. Now, there is a version of being filled with the Spirit, uh, which has some of those same motivations too. I don't know whether you've come across this. Um, that's what being filled with the Spirit was all about in the youth group where I became a Christian in England. Uh, being filled with the Spirit was about a certain set of experiences that marked you out as being one of the in crowd, one of the approved uh, kind of members of the group. It was almost talked about like it was some kind of illicit substance, you know, offering you the chance to let go and find out what would happen to yourself if you surrendered all your self-control. 
But I think if that's what we imagine being filled with the Spirit is all about, Paul wants us to know that we're being totally ripped off. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that word implies contrast. Instead, in Paul's mind, being filled with the Spirit for real is the polar opposite of getting drunk. Getting drunk is all about escaping the realities of life. But being filled with the Spirit is about engaging the realities of life. The Greek word that Paul chooses to describe getting drunk here, which I think in all of our translations is uh, uh, rendered debauchery. Actually, in the original, that just means wastefulness. Wasting your time. Wasting your talents. Wasting your life. But what Paul means by being filled with the Spirit is 180 degrees different to that, isn't it? If you look in verse 16, see what he says. Being filled with the Spirit is all about making the most of our time. Making the most of our talents. Making the most of our lives. Being filled with the Spirit is the essence of real Christianity. And the text that we have in front of us here this morning explains what it looks like. So uh, let's stand and we'll read the whole thing. We're going to take this from Ephesians 5 verse 15. I'm going to read it through to verse 33. And let's pray as we start here that God will meet us and surprise us um, as he teaches us about the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. God in heaven, we just come before your word knowing that this is uh, truly an awesome book. Um, That if we were to be able to scan the shelves of our local bookstore and see it truly, that the Bible would just shine out like something that's not of this earth. Because it's not the words of men and women to each other. It's not just sheep bleating at each other like every self-help book, every man-made religion on earth. God, this is from outside us, from beyond us, our maker's instructions for life. And God, it presents us with so many challenges in this passage, but we would... uh, bow before it. We would hear it. Jesus, we see you do that in your life, even though you are God yourself, that you surrendered yourself to the word of God. Help us not to imagine that we are above that. God, work in our hearts and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's keep reading. Sorry, those of you who are sitting down, we haven't even read it yet. Okay, um, (laughs) so Ephesians 5 verse 15, here we go. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity for the days of evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, this is God's word. Take a seat, and we're going to dive into this here. So first of all, we need to just get our bearings in the book of Ephesians. Ronnie, do we have the screen? We do. Okay, perfect. So if you just refresh that, we should be good to go. Wee, perfect. Okay. So for those of you who are into this stuff, um, I want to just kind of show you where we are in the overall uh, kind of structure of Ephesians. We've been working with this diagram so far, the first three chapters, and you'll know that it breaks down like this. Uh, Paul has this way of arguing, doesn't he, where he goes from the vertical to the horizontal and then to prayer. So he starts with material, which is all about God's interaction with me. He says, this is how God changed you. And this is how you now, what you were and how that's been transformed by God. So all very vertical. But Paul isn't content just to kind of throw out there these abstract doctrinal uh, kind of thoughts. He wants us to be able to ground them in everyday life. So he immediately goes from the vertical to the horizontal. And he says, here's how this needs to change your relationships with your friends, with your work colleagues, with your husband or your wife, with your children. But then he also realizes that when he lays that down, we just can't do it. We don't have the power to do it. And so each time he comes to prayer and he prays specifically for the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that it would be at work in us in order to deliver this. But now we're breaking into the second half of Ephesians. So let's blow this thing out. You can see now that's the whole book. Here's that structure kind of imprinted over it. And now we've reached a point in our journey through Ephesians where we're able to see the whole thing. And it should be kind of familiar. It looks like this. That structure, vertical horizontal prayer, that we see in the microcosm at the start of the book, we see in the macrocosm as we look at the whole thing. If you look in your Bibles at chapter 4, verse 1, which is really the turning point of Ephesians, you'll see that Paul says that he wants the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received. And what he's doing, he's looking back to the first three chapters, and that's where he sees the calling, all of this stuff about what God has done for us, And now he says, I want you to live a life worthy of that. And he goes on and describes it. And all the way from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 9, it's all how you must live. But then it's really striking. When you get to chapter 6, verse 10, if you look at that in your Bibles, what does Paul say? He says, you need power from God to do it. In fact, actually, someone prayed that um, over Jeff and Heather this morning. What a beautiful prayer, just bringing the scriptures all around them. But it's true, we need the power of God in order to actually live out the Christian life. So there we go, vertical horizontal prayer. That's what Paul's whole shtick is. So you can see we're here now in 4, 1 through 6, 9. And let's just dive into that a little bit more. Uh, It has this kind of concentric structure to it. The beginning of chapter 4, Paul goes in talking about the body and its parts. Do you remember that beautiful sermon that Greg preached to us? One of the best sermons I've heard just for ages. Wonderful. Um, And it just uh, completely... Uh, 
unveiled to me this idea that we have gifts that we need to use for the benefit of others. It's not all about our own fulfillment, but it's about saying, hey, neighbor, you need me to be living up to the gifts that God has placed in my life for your benefit, don't you? So that we would really pull together. So one body, many parts. From there, Paul then goes into this extended section that you might call put off and put on. And Rod and Westy covered this. Put off uh, the old self, put on the new self. Put off darkness, put on light. But now what we find is Paul is going back to the body and the parts again as we finish off this whole section, which is about the life that we're supposed to live. And that's where we are today. So we're just going to be right in there. Okay? So you might summarize this whole part of uh, Ephesians, the life, as become what you are. We have been summoned uh, to live up to this amazing truth that God has rescued us from death and made us alive in him and given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we'll leave that on the screen just to keep you oriented. But now we're going to dive in to our text. What does all of that stuff mean uh, for us today, reading Ephesians 5? Well, the first thing it tells us is that what we have in front of us this morning is intensely practical. We're in the life section, the become what you are section of Ephesians. This is the place where Paul is summoning us to do things differently. So he wants to give us some things that we can take away with us this morning. He wants to show us some things that we can and we must do differently if we have the power of God working inside us. And also Paul is returning to this image of one body, many parts, not just originating it here, is he? He's already said at the beginning of chapter 4 quite a lot about this theme. And so we need to understand what we're reading here this morning is not supposed to be taken in isolation. This one body, many parts principle is a metaphor for the whole of the Christian life, not just for the slice of it that we're looking at. So over the next two weeks, and we're going to take two weeks over this little one body, many parts section at the end there, and we're going to find Paul talking about marriage, about family, about life in the workplace, but none of those is an end in itself. All of them are illustrations of the way that we're supposed to be living as parts of the body. Okay, so everybody cool with that? That's the way that Ephesians stacks up. If you've got that picture in your head, you have the book pretty much down, so hopefully you'll find that helpful. So let's dive in now to our section, and we'll find out what it is that God has in mind to teach us today. The first words of our passage read like this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And then did you see a little bit further down in verse 17, he says, therefore do not be foolish. So here's the bottom line as we go into this. Paul is presenting us with a choice. Do we want to be wise or do we want to be foolish? Which do we want? (laughs) It's kind of obvious, isn't it, when we see it like there at at the start of the passage. We want to be wise, right? No one wants to be foolish. No one wants to be stupid. But it's important that we remember how obvious that seems at the start of the text because it's going to seem really unobvious as we go through. This text is probably one of the most countercultural, controversial passages in the whole of the New Testament. But Paul just still doesn't back off that strong contrast between wisdom and folly at the beginning. He's well aware that the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to the world. But he's also well aware of the fact that for all of its wisdom, the world is sick 
and sad and dying. And he doesn't want Christians to be deceived by it. So Paul dives into verse 18 now, which is where we started. And he tells us that the escapism of the world, the drunkenness of the world, the desire to live in some kind of alternate reality where bad things will never happen to me and one day I will meet Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect and all my dreams will come true. He tells us that that way of life is foolishness. And wisdom could not be more different. Wisdom, says Paul, is being filled with the Spirit. And in verses 19 to 21, he tells us exactly what that looks like. And he has four headings, kind of conveniently. So mark these in your notes if you take them. Number one, being filled with the Spirit is all about encouraging other people. And that doesn't mean just telling people that we're impressed with their resume or that their dress is cute, does it? It means speaking to people in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It means leading people into the truths of the gospel. How much do we really do that? Do we do that in the hallway outside? Good morning. Hey, I really see God's work in your life. Or good morning. You look great today. Filled with the spirit, wisdom, foolishness. Wisdom, foolishness. I think Matt's sermon on encouragement last year absolutely nailed that. If you haven't listened to that one, take a copy home with you. To be filled with the spirit is to rise above merely massaging each other's egos and instead to appreciate the work that we can see God doing in other people's lives. What does Paul say? He says he wants us to bring psalms into the game. How often do we do that? If you're downcast, he wants me to be able to come alongside you, maybe with Psalm 42 and encourage you that even though things are hard, you will praise God again because he is a saviour and he always lifts up the downcast. If you're struggling with doubt, Paul wants me maybe to be able to come alongside you with Psalm 73, helping you to see that even if your questions, even though your questions are hard and they can be, that they're part of the life of faith and that God's wisdom proves its solidity and its stability in the end if we give it the chance. Paul wants us to be able to bring hymns into the game, doesn't he? How often do we do that? If you're struggling with some dreadful addiction in your life, Paul wants me to be able to step into that and say, he is stronger, he is stronger, sin is broken. If you're dying, Paul wants me to be able to come alongside you and encourage you that it won't be long before it's your turn to be filled with awestruck wonder at the mention of his name. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul just carries on in verse 19. We've got the second thing. The second characteristic of being filled with the Spirit is singing out our praises. That's the reason why we sing in church. I don't know whether you've ever thought about that, whether singing kind of strikes you as the normal type of thing that people would do. I remember when I was 14 and I came to church for the first time, having never really set foot in a church in my life, suddenly seeing all these people who I knew from school and in my village, like singing their hearts out. I thought it was completely mental. No idea what was going on. (laughs) But it's one of the fundamental marks of being filled with the Spirit here in the text. Why is that? Well, it's because praising God is what we're made for. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, says Psalm 19. Everything that God has made has been made to reflect back the wonder and beauty of the one who stands behind it. But you know, we have a special role in that. Because uniquely in this world, Unlike anything else that exists, any of the animals around us, human beings have the capability to offer intelligent 
praise. So we're not just rocks that just kind of uh, praise God just by the fact that they exist, which is a miracle in and of itself. No, we're people. We can look back at our past experiences and see God's faithfulness in our lives. We can look at the contrast that we've known between God's absence and God's presence. And we can stand up and name his presence better. Because it is. We're the worship leaders of creation. That's our role. And Ephesians 3 makes it clear, doesn't it, that there's an audience for those praises. Do you remember that? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places are looking on intently, knowing that this is the place in all of creation where rebellion broke out and where the question of whether life without God is better than life with God has been actually tested in practice. And as believers, it's our choice to shout back to that watching world, saying, he is better. We choose him because he came down into the wreckage of what we've made here and brought us back at the cost of his own life. And then in verse 20, Paul goes on to his third characteristic of being filled with the Spirit, which is thankfulness. Do you remember that from Matthew's sermon on the first part of chapter 5? Christians put off obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking and they put on thanksgiving. That's what we do. Now that may seem like a burden to us. That discipline of taking time to look back at our past and to review the things that are happening around us at the moment and count our blessings one by one. Seems a bit old school, a bit boring. But in my very weak and limited experience with this, It never seems like a burden when I actually do it. Maybe it seems like a burden in prospect. But I think you know I know who's putting that idea in my head. When I actually set myself to thank God, I find God pouring good things back into my life. And there's a reason for that. Thanking God connects to our spiritual health in the same way that physical exercise connects to our physical health. In just the same way that neglecting physical exercise eventually leaves us incapable of physical exercise, or neglecting thankfulness eventually leaves us unaware that we have anything to thank God for at all. If we want to feel fit, we have to get fit, right? The getting fit part comes first. And thankfulness is like that. If we want to feel thankful, we have to get thankful and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives maybe that's something for some of us just to take away and say I'm going to go and do that I'm not expecting to feel like I want to I'm going to go make it happen and let the wanting to come afterwards so that's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit in Paul's mind encouragement praise and thanksgiving for the note takers among you I am coming to the full form (laughs) but practicing encouragement and praise and thanksgiving is what it means to be wise in God's eyes It's what it means to escape the foolishness of the world. And it just struck me as I was reading that how different all of that is from the drunkenness with which Paul compares it. The drunkenness of verse 18 stands out as a kind of symbol here in our text for the escapism and the individualism of the world. It's about putting ourselves on the throne, making ourselves the center, claiming that we have the right to define what's good and bad on our own with disastrous results. But the wisdom of God, truly being filled with the Spirit, is focused everywhere except ourselves, isn't it? 
It's focused on encouraging others. It's focused on praising God. It's focused on being thankful and encouraged, acknowledging that the privileges that we enjoy are in life are not ours by our own work. That they're given to us by God and giving him the credit that he deserves. And it's all of that that paves the way for the fourth mark of being filled with the Spirit on Paul's agenda. And that's where he's going to concentrate for the rest of this text. The Spirit-filled life is marked by encouragement, praise, thanksgiving, and submission. Encouragement, praise, thanksgiving, and submission. And this is where things might start getting a little bit more uncomfortable uh, for us. Because submission is a dirty word in our culture, isn't it? The world around us is telling us that submission is dangerous. That it's an exercise in suppressing the inner you that will lead to untold psychological damage. Submission is a threat to our individuality. It's going to stop us getting to where we want to go. And in this passage we find it right in the place where we least want to see it. In Paul's description of the marriage relationship. But if we're going to understand this, we need to see that before Paul even gets to marriage, this summons to submission goes all the way back through the message of Ephesians. Remember the structure of the book that we've got up here. This whole section is about becoming what you are. And Paul isn't suddenly going to ask us to become something here at the, in the middle of chapter 5 that he hasn't been gunning for earlier on in the previous chapters. So if you look back maybe later at chapter 5 verse 2, You'll find Paul telling the Ephesians to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's submission. And back in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul told us that we have to play the part of supporting ligaments in the body, building other people up in love. That's submission. And all of the horizontal content in this book is built on the vertical, isn't it? That takes us back into the first three chapters of the book where we learned about that amazing dance of mutual submission that's happening even between the members of the Trinity. So we need to understand here that submission, as it's pictured in Ephesians, is not an optional lifestyle choice for Christian marriage. Submission is being filled with the Spirit. According to Ephesians, if we have a problem with submission as a concept, we are not Christians. Being a Christian is all about submission, and it will keep on being about submission for all eternity. In heaven, we will live in perfect submission to God, laying down our interests at each other's feet forever. And God wants to get us ready for that. In verse 16, Paul told us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Why? So that we can be prepared for a future in which those evil days are consigned to the past. In verse 27, Paul tells us that Jesus died to present, himself, present us to himself as a radiant church at the end of our lives. Why? To remind us that we have a glorious future ahead of us and we need to be prepared for it. And that's the context in which we get this call to submission. So as we head now into Paul's material on marriage, we need to see it how God sees it. Marriage is a wonderful blessing for sure. But first and foremost... It's practice for heaven. God sees marriage in this fallen world as a kind of baby gym for eternity. And if we don't get that, our whole philosophy of marriage is going to end up upside down. 
See, Christians habitually approach pastors and marriage counselors saying that the problems they're having with submission mean that they want a divorce. I can't handle how different my partner is from me. I can't handle how much is being expected from me. I can't handle sacrificing so many of my interests and so much of my time. I don't want to learn the love language that my partner is apparently speaking. But the Bible just says, are you crazy? This is like saying the heaviness of your dumbbells is a basis for giving up exercising with them. The heaviness of your dumbbells is the whole point of exercising with them. The heaviness of your dumbbells is the thing that's making you what you want to become. And the heaviness of submission in marriage or in any other part of our Christian lives is making us what God wants us to become. There's no higher calling than that. Is it unpleasant? Yes. Sometimes it really is. Submission in marriage sometimes feels like it's tearing us apart. But that is the wisdom of God. The alternative path, the put down the weights and find me a marriage that doesn't weigh anything path, is like all the miracle fitness programs on the surface of the earth. It's a con. It's a joke. It's wisdom in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, it's folly. So the difficulty of submission in marriage, however hard it is, is a blessing to the person who's on their way to heaven. Being married is like having a weights machine in your own basement. The tools we need to get built up in holiness are right there at our fingertips. If we're married, we have no excuse for failing to grow more and more ready for heaven through this all-important grace of submission. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that submission is a write-off for singles, does it? Think about Megan, who stood up here earlier on and told us about her experience on the immersion week. Those girls went out and found a way to get built up in the Spirit's work of submission in their lives. They went out and found people to lay their lives down for. They went out and found people to be inconvenienced by. But the blessing for those of us who are married is, we don't even have to get out of bed to do that, do we? Seriously? Marriage is not the only place in which we can practice submission. We'll see that in next week's sermon, but it is one of the best. So let's get stuck into this with those assumptions in mind. As a kind of housekeeping note here, um, I want to just start by letting the married people in the room know what this text is and is not for. The material in this passage that uh, talks to husbands is not here so that their wives can hold their feet to the fire about living it out. Wives have got more than enough to think about in the material that's aimed at them. And husbands are accountable to God for their obedience. And the material in this passage that talks to wives is not here so that husbands can hold their feet to the fire about living it out. Husbands have got more than enough to think about in the material that's intended for them. And wives are accountable to God for their obedience. So as I remember a good friend of mine, Ian Garrett, saying when he preached on this back in England, he said there's a sense in which when we read what Paul has to say to the wives here, I kind of want the husbands to leave the room. It's not for husbands to dwell on what our wives are called to be. That's a matter between them and Jesus. And when we read what Paul has to say to the husbands here, yeah, there's a sense in which I kind of want the wives to leave the room. Because it's not for you to dwell on what your husbands are called to be. That's a matter between them and Jesus. 
So those are the ground rules, okay? We're all going to leave here this morning with plenty to work on. You can be sure of that. So if you're all happy with that, let's dive in. Turn with me to verse 21. And um, we'll see the first thing for us to notice here is maybe a surprise. Submission in the marriage relationship is bi-directional. Did you see that? Both the husband and the wife are called to submit. Paul begins with these words. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as we start to march our way through this text, we're going to see just how serious he really is. His strategy for both partners is the same. In each case, he starts just by opening up a truth about the relationship between Jesus and his church. And then he uses that to illustrate the parallel truth Uh, A parallel truth about the relationship that exists between husbands and wives. And he starts by focusing on the wives. The truth he wants wives to focus on is all about Jesus' role in his relationship to the church. Jesus is the head and the saviour of the church, says Paul. And that's why the church submits to him. And just as the church submits to Christ, he continues, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So what does he mean? Does the fact that husbands are pictured here as the head of their marriages mean that wives are somehow relegated to practical tasks and that their ability to think is no longer valued? Absolutely not. Does this tell us that Paul, that uh, wives need to look to their husbands as their saviour in some way? No. In fact, it's a really important foundation for any marriage that we don't start looking to our partners to do things that only Jesus can do. Is marriage going to satisfy a woman who's looking for somewhere to find her identity? No. Only Jesus can do that. Is marriage going to satisfy a woman who's looking for a hero to come riding into her life and make all the wrong things right? No. Only Jesus can do that. No, what Paul has in mind with these parallels is simply to get us thinking about what the church's submission to Jesus as head and saviour looks like in practice and then to bring those practical lessons across into marriage. So what does it look like? Well, here are three quick observations. First, the church's submission to Jesus is a matter of dependence. Having Jesus as our head and saviour means throwing in our lot with him 100%, doesn't it? We don't make backup plans in case our reliance on Jesus doesn't work out, do we? And submission in marriage is like that. It doesn't change the fact that married couples are responsible for working together and communicating and pooling their best thinking on any issue that they face. But when that's all done, it does require the wife to back her man and not try to go around him. We know that's true with Jesus, don't we? We know it's not okay for us to go off on our own on our spiritual walk and plot a course apart from him because we don't think he's quite got it covered. Well, it's the same in marriage. Submission means dependence. Second, the church's submission to Jesus is a matter of self-reflection. Living under Jesus as our head and our saviour involves recognising the fact that sometimes, in fact really quite often, we are in the wrong And there are changes that need to be made and apologies that need to be said. And submission in marriage is like that too. Husbands, and I know this because I am one, do not live up to Jesus' standard. We are not always right. And when we're wrong, 
We need to be prepared to yield and to apologize and to change just as we do with Jesus. Right, guys? Yeah. But sometimes, every once in a while, husbands are right. And when those times come, wives need to be willing to yield and apologize and change just as they do with Jesus. Right, ladies? Yeah. Third, the church's submission to Jesus is a matter of identification. There's a willingness on our part to say that Jesus is ours and we are his. And that has its parallel in marriage too. There are times in every marriage when husbands disappoint their wives. And in those times it's easy for wives to respond by griping about their husbands. Particularly when everyone else in their kind of friendship circle is griping about their husbands too. But when those times come... Submission in marriage as a Christian for a wife means saying, I will not go there. I will not play that game. The wife described in this passage is willing to own her husband and stand up for him, even at the cost of her own credibility. Because that's what we do with Jesus, isn't it? We say, I am his and he is mine. I'm not ashamed. And it's the same thing in marriage for wives. But Paul doesn't just have the wives in the crosshairs here. In verses 25 through to 32, he moves on to husbands. And once again, he makes his point by opening up a truth about the relationship that exists between Jesus and the church. The truth that Paul wants husbands to focus on is the fact that Jesus loves his church and that he gave himself up for her to make her holy. But what does that mean? Does that mean that husbands need to be carefully looking out for all the areas where they think their wives aren't holy enough and seeking to make corrections? Does he mean that we should be deliberately trying to mould our wives' characters? No. In fact, it's a really important foundation for any marriage that we leave the character shaping in God's hands. In marriage, our partners do become probably the principal means that God will use to shape and transform us into the likeness of Jesus over the years. But God is the craftsman. Our role is only ever to be willing to have our lives shaped, to prayerfully overcome our own resistance and accept uh, the fact that we ourselves need to be broken and remade by him. It's not our role to try to direct that process in our partner. Now, what Paul has in mind with these parallels is simply to get us thinking about what it looked like for Jesus to love the church in practice and then to bring those practical lessons across into marriage. And what did it look like? Well, once again, it looked like submission. The first thing that Paul tells us about Jesus' love for the church is that it motivated him to give himself up for us. And that's a striking statement. So far we've thought a lot about submission, the submission that the church is willing to yield to Jesus, haven't we? But look here what the text says about the submission that Jesus was willing to yield to the church. Jesus submitted his interests and his comfort, his reputation and his future to the interests of his bride. And that's our calling, husbands. There are many things out there that we would choose to do and to enjoy if we weren't married that now we are not called to choose or to enjoy. Because submission for us involves laying down our interests and our preferences at our wife's feet. That's what Jesus did for us. 
And that's what we are to do for our wives, irrespective of whether we think they have earned it in any shape or form. We lay down our interests at the feet of our wives because Jesus' love for the church is our model, period. And look at the way Paul describes this submission. It's amazing, but it's entirely given over to a celebration of the way that the church benefits. Did you spot that? Paul doesn't dwell on the incredible cost of Jesus' sacrifice, even though we better believe it was incredibly costly. He just says he gave himself up for her and then he just moves straight on to all the wonderful blessing that that submission enables for the church. He's so focused on her. And that's a challenge for us too, isn't it? I know it is for me. Because personally, I specialize in the version of husbandly submission that will do all of this good stuff, laying down its interests at the feet of the wife, but which then insists that all those sacrifices get noticed and that my submission itself becomes the hero. I'm the guy who's persuaded himself that he needs to be appreciated. But where does that word need come into this passage? Anybody see it? No, because it's not there. Certainly it's nice to be appreciated, but this text will not let Christian husbands insist on it. That isn't Jesus' model. Jesus has sufficient confidence in his identity as a son that he doesn't need continual affirmation by his bride. So when we give him affirmation, it's not because he's relentlessly dropping hints that he expects it, is it? He lets it be a gift of love from us. So let it be in our marriages, men. Finally, look at the way that Paul describes what it is that motivates Jesus' submission. He tells us that Jesus loved his bride, the church, as if she were his own body. Jesus makes such a radical identification of himself with his church that it doesn't even feel like he is putting our interests above his own. Jesus has allowed our interests to become his own. He says we were two, but now we're one. And that's his challenge to us as husbands. Just as it would seem no inconvenience to your legs to carry your arms to hospital if they were injured, we're called to play the part of legs in our marriage carrying our wives' interests as we would our own, because they are our own. That's what marriage means. So that's God's vision of submission in marriage. Countercultural? You bet. But also wonderful, don't you think? Ladies, honestly, can you think of anything more likely to draw out your respect than the vision of manhood laid out here? Gents? Honestly, can you think of anything more likely to draw out your love than the vision of womanhood laid out here? So we need to remember that, don't we? When we're in that situation with our own partner, remember. This is what our partner's hearts long for, whatever our culture is telling us. Everything in the world is screaming out against this, but this is the wisdom of God. This passage teaches equality of status, but difference in roles between the sexes. It teaches equality of value, but difference in gifts. And it's true, there's a part of all of us that just resists that with everything we've got. But the book of Ephesians gives us the confidence as believers just to let that go. Look back at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 sometime later today. It reassures us that each one of us has received grace as Christ apportioned it. 
We've received the roles and gifts that we've been given as men and women according to his wisdom. This teaching is not the fruit of some paternalistic or feminist power play. These are the very thoughts of Jesus who ascended to rule over the whole universe. He knows what's best for us. We are sheep. He's the shepherd. And it's in that confidence that Paul now wraps up. Husbands must love their wives as they love themselves, says Paul. And wives must respect, literally revere, their husbands. That relates back to verse 21, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's exactly the same word. The wife's willingness to depend on her husband, to identify herself as his, and to admit it when she is at fault, just as he also must admit it when he is at fault, those things constitute the reverence that Paul is calling for here. Wives, if you give yourselves to that challenge, you will have happy husbands, you will provide our church with a model of what it looks like to be loved by the Saviour, sorry, how to love the Saviour, and you'll be ready for heaven when your time comes. And husbands, our willingness to lay down our interests at the feet of our wives without drawing attention to our sacrifices and to treat their needs as our own, those things constitute the love that Paul is calling for. If we will give ourselves to that challenge, we will have happy wives, we'll provide this church with a model of how well we are loved by Jesus, and we will be ready for heaven when our time comes. And when we put it like that, like the Bible puts it, well, maybe submission doesn't seem like such a strange life choice after all. The world tells us that submission is dangerous, that it's constraining, but the Bible tells us that submission is life-giving and liberating. In Jesus' economy, the person who wants to save their life will lose it, but the person who's willing to lose their life will find it. The Bible tells us that submission is the key to a joyful, long-lasting marriage that's a blessing to others. But more than that, it tells us that submission is the key to a joyful, long-lasting walk with God that will prepare us for heaven, whether we're married or not. And that's the really big takeaway from our text. You see, in chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul ends where he began, blowing this out far wider than just marriage. It's true, marriage is a great place for us to exercise this grace of submission and to get trained up for the life that we will live in heaven. But it's more than that. Human marriage is a picture of the ultimate marriage. The marriage in which the great prince of all creation comes down from his throne and claims us. The bride who'd been set apart for him from before the world began. And yet who left him and repudiated him and broke off the engagement and went off with somebody else. Human marriage is a picture of the relationship that now exists between that prince and that bride. Where everything has been made up where our foolishness has all been paid for through his self-sacrificial wisdom and where we now leave the world that enslaved us and cleave to the prince who brought us back. Do you see that in the text? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, says Paul, but I'm talking about Christ and the church The leaving and cleaving of human marriage that we're all so familiar with is a picture of what it looks like to live the Christian life. In fact, I think that we could retitle this whole section of Ephesians, leave and cleave, if we wanted to. We may as well just get that up on the board here. 
Just refresh that one, Ronnie. There we go. Leave and cleave. That whole thing. That's what it means to live the life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. That's what we learn back up in verse 18, isn't it? To be filled with the Spirit is to leave the drunkenness, all the unreality and escapism of the world behind, and to cleave to Jesus, to encourage others, to sing out our praises to whatever is out there to hear us, and to turn our memories and our present experiences into thankfulness, and then to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is to leave all the individualism and the chasing after experiences behind and to engage with the world that's in front of us as children of God, making the most of every opportunity. God doesn't want us to be living out some kind of ghastly, anemic form of Christianity where we spend months just summoning up the courage to perform one act of obedience and then we spend months afterwards feeding off it remembering how hard it was to do. God wants us to be recklessly engaged Seeing our marriages, our parenting, our work lives, everything we touch as means to grow up into what we're going to be for all eternity. Encouraging, praising, thanking, and submitting. And bless God, when we reach chapter 6, we're going to find that he's given us power to do that. Because I know I can't do that on my own. So how are we doing with this? Is this the life we're really living? Is this the posture with which we approach the world? Do our neighbours and our spouses and our children look at us and see submission? Let's pray. God in heaven, this is a heavy, heavy text. Just smashes right into pretty much everything that we've drunk in from our world since we were small. And yet, God, we see in it the power of God and the wisdom of God. And God, we've looked at each other here this morning and recognised, yeah, okay, this... um, This really articulates my needs, but it doesn't necessarily articulate what I'm wanting or willing to give. God, work in our hearts, break us, make us strong to live the way that you have called us to live. Lord God, to give the things that you've called us to give, to lay down the things that you've called us to lay down, to get out of ourselves, Lord God, to encourage others to praise and thank you to submit to our spouses, uh, to our neighbours, to offer submission to our neighbourhoods. Lord God, that your name might be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen.